Welcome to this podcast, recorded live at the Junction Church, Aberdeen. We pray this message inspires and encourages you. For more information, you can connect with us at www.thejunctionchurch.com. In Matthew 10, verse 5 to 8, it says, the, the twelve disciples Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and go, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. This is, it's a pretty cool vision of these sort of young believers, and that Jesus has sort of he has let them loose upon Israel. And he, I, I like the fact that as sort of a, a, sort of as a devoted sort of father, uh, as, as a mentor to them, that he's, he's put the stair gate up. He said, look, you know what? Just, just stick to the Jews for now. Let's just stick to Israel for now. Don't worry about the Gentiles right now. Don't worry about going to cities of the Samaritan. Let's just, let's just play in the living room. You're walking for the first time. You don't have to play on the stairs, okay? Let's just stick to the living room. Let's just stick to the Jews. And you go out there and you use what that which I've placed within you, that which you have received, give freely. Give, use what you have been given to create a new move of God. Use it to create, uh, liberally impart that which God has put within you. He's given you the, the brushes. He's given you the colors. This is your canvas. Now go and paint. Go and create something. One of the things I've learned from this, uh, this series is that uh, Pastor Kevin knows a lot about art. He knows a lot about the Bible too, but he knows an awful lot about art. And that, that's, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's pretty cool listening to this stuff because the honesty is I, I don't know anything about art really. I mean, I'm more... I'm more finger paints, to be honest. I'm, I'm a little more simple, a little less subtle or uh, sophisticated in my, in my art choices. I, I don't know any Jewish-Italian artists whose name I can't pronounce, even if I knew their names. Uh, I don't know any of those people. I know Banksy. I know Banksy. Do you guys know who Banksy is? I think we've got a photo, just in case you weren't sure. I like Banksy. Banksy is, he's like sort of edgy. He's satirical. He's evocative. He, the great thing about, this, this is what it is. We just don't know how he gets away with it. We don't know how he gets away with sort of putting these murals, putting these, uh, these drawings, these pictures, these paintings on sort of just walls around the city, on, on, on places that he's not supposed to go. The real tension with Banksy is what if he gets caught? How has he not got caught already? Uh, he's, he's an outlaw. He's a vandal. He's, he's enigmatic. Uh, he's infamous for defacing uh, public buildings with subversive art. Uh, in a sense, his art form is the execution of these clandestine murals. It, it, that's, that's part of the, uh, the intrigue with him is how does he get away with it? And, and part of that as I was thinking about it, part of that, I think, is the conflict. Part of that is the, the, the issue or the complication with how he will be remembered. Or more specifically, how his art will be remembered. Because his, 
anonymity, the fact that it is in some senses more about how he gets away with it, how he has remained sort of faceless for such a long time, is in a sense it over it is greater than also than kind of the creations themselves. The, it's 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 almost like the paintings themselves are just sort of the challenge. They're just the context to what he's actually done, who he actually is. Who he is, is the mystery. And, and, and that's sort of the conflict. How will his art will be remembered? Will it be his art that is remembered? Or is it just his exploits? And, and that's, that's the complication. I'm not saying it's one or the other. I'm just saying that is the complication with what he produces. What he produces is, is acclaimed... It's uh, popular, but would it be as popular if it didn't have this narrative, this sort of, this outlaw persona to go along with it? It's the complication. You see, with most works of art, there's a meritocracy. You know, the, the work of art stands for itself. It might have been made hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and it stands out, and someone sees it, and someone pursues understanding that drawing in itself. With the Mona Lisa, which is the most probably famous of, of all sort of paintings, you know, we know that its creator was Leonardo da Vinci. Everybody knows that. It's, it's well known. It, they are, the two are synonymous. The two are sort of inextricably linked. You, you can't separate one from the other. And if you think about why, why do we even... This is crazy, but I'm actually talking about art. I know nothing about it. But, but what I do know is this, is that the reason that we teach about art the reason we learn about art is because art in itself is a window into the history of man. And we know the dry, uh, the dry facts of what happened, but how did people feel about the things that have happened in the past? How, do, how did people at the time respond to the decisions of their governments and their, their armies and, and what was going around? And art is, an, is a window into that. And you need to have an understanding of who created it in order to understand the impulse, to understand the motivation, to understand what the significance of what they were trying to create, what they were trying to illustrate to the world around them. A painting without an author is compromised because the expression, the motivation, as I said, was it's absent. It has to be in some ways inferred. You have to kind of, uh, you don't know the person. You don't know what they... What, what were they were thinking at the time because you don't know who they are. But you can say, well, what, what difference does that make? Well, the thing is that if you don't know who created something, if you don't understand who authored something, don't understand what the meaning behind that thing is, then it becomes exploitable. Here's an example for you. The swastika. Swastika is a symbol. It's the emblem of the Nazi party. And it, is a, it has these tremendously dark undertones. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a symbol of dread. It's a symbol of, really, that represents all of what is wrong with mankind, of the, the atrocities that man can commit. Prior to 1930, the swastika was the symbol that meant good luck. It was a symbol of future success. It was essentially the thumbs-up emoji. It was the thumbs up emoji. I'm telling you. It was, hey, Neil. All the best for your job interview tomorrow. Swastika emoji. I mean, I don't know what kind of job he's going for, but that's, 
That's kind of what we're saying there. That's, that's what it meant. And yet, really, could it mean anything further from that today? It's, uh, it's, it doesn't mean that. I heard a man on the radio, a fellow on the radio, who was discussing the return of Christ in the most contemptuous terms I have ever heard. The idea that no one would maybe, no one would notice, no one would care, that social media would, would, would mock what he's wearing, that, that it would be just this minimalist, uninteresting thing. And there was nobody else on the show that knew any better. And so... They just accepted it. And I was like, I was listening to them. What? What? You know, the whole world will stop and applaud when Adele sings and performs something like you at an award ceremony. And yet, what we reckon we will clown the arrival of God, the arrival of Jesus. If you think that, then you do not know who you're talking about. And here's the kicker. That's not their fault. It's mine. It's mine. The absence of a witness to a claim, to to pronounce the significance to the world of, of his signs and his wonders, they will be squandered by the prideful theorizing of man. You look at the We've had a few of them recently, but those, those sunsets we've had recently, where they're all orange and purple, and they seem to roll on and on forever. And you just stand and you look at them, and you know you could take a photo of them with your phone, but it wouldn't even remotely do them justice. You look at that, and, and it is unparalleled in its beauty. It's attributed to no more than sort of the random confluence of metallurgical conditions. It's just, it's just something that happens. There's no attributing that to the glory and the majesty of God, that these are the murals of his magnificence that he paints across the world such that mankind can hear him. And you might, you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, but you know what, those things speak, those, those great wonders of creation speak They speak so much louder than I could ever speak. I'll counter that by saying, have you noticed that most people won't let themselves listen? Most people don't want to hear what creation is singing, what creation is praising. I want to go through to the beginning of of John 3. John 3 is this Account this encounter between Jesus and a man who came to visit him, a man who had his own ideas, his own thoughts, his own concepts, and he wanted Jesus to hear them and to agree with them. John 3, starting at the beginning. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Came by night. Why did he come at night? Because he didn't want his colleagues to know that he was going to see Jesus. But the Pharisees were very bold when they were all in a gang and, and Jesus was sort of and standing there in the crowd and, and they wanted to try and catch him out. Or they were more than happy to speak to him then. But to come to Jesus one-on-one 
to inquire upon him, to, to bring your own thoughts and concerns before him. That had to be done in secrecy. That had to be done under the cover of nightfall. You might think of Nicodemus as the Sanhedrin Banksy, but that he would come when no one would know. He would come in the dead of night. Came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, well, Nicodemus seems all right. I mean, that seems okay. On the surface of it, he seems to have got it all right, come from God, doing wonderful signs. Yeah, that, that all seems great. But, but if you dig a little bit deeper, if you, if you just pull it apart a little bit, you begin to realize the little seeds of dishonor. He calls him a teacher come from God, not son sent from God. There's this, this element of dishonor that, that diminishes. It, it, it relegates. It takes what is purposeful, what is magnificent, what is uh, all-encompassing, what is uh, something that you can't look away from and, and puts it a little bit further in the distance, pushes it to the realms of the, the, the edge of the horizon such that you don't have to face it quite so much. We've all done that. You, you take something and you, you just relegate it. You push it to the edge of your vision such that it doesn't have such, a, such an impact. It's not something that you have to look at full force. Nicodemus wanted Jesus to confirm his convictions. And you know what? It's difficult. It's difficult for anyone to comprehend the intentions of God when our own understanding fills the foreground of the picture. When it is right there in front of us. Our opinions are forever photobombing the revelation that God is imparting onto us. So Jesus... He has to take Nicodemus right back to the core, right back to the beginning, right back to the basics so that he can understand just the, the folly of his, the premise of his question in the first place. Jesus answered him and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, to see the kingdom of God is to see what is happening clearly to see it without any skew, without any bias. It is to see clearly what God's intentions are. And by implication, what he's saying to him is, your intentions, your, the whole structure of your question, the whole structure of your belief is flawed. It's unsound. You're, you're asking me, you're a teacher, and because you're a teacher, because you're qualified, because you have this, this level of, of uh, importance. That is why you are able to do wonderful signs of God. That, that's, that's what this is about, isn't it, Jesus? Because you're a teacher. Nicodemus was a teacher too. And Jesus is saying, you've got this totally backwards. He continues, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What's wrong with you, Nicodemus? That doesn't make any sense. You have to understand that that his 
entire interpretation of what Jesus said is constrained within this natural mindset. He's trying to interpret, he's trying to translate what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is saying is just so foreign to him that he's trying to, it says in Proverbs 3 verse 5, lean not on your own understanding. And when the Bible says things, things to us that we don't understand, we try and we find some knowledge that is adjacent to it and we overlay it upon that revelation to concoct a more agreeable meaning. That's why we come across these, pa- uh, these passages that trouble us. Because they shake us from our apathy. They, 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 in fact, the only reason that we find them troubling is because they contradict the comfortable theories, the comfortable theologies that we've constructed for ourselves. Jesus answered, most assuredly, most assuredly, you have to know that when Jesus says, most assuredly, what he's saying is, what I am about to tell you is unequivocally true. This is a principle that you must build your life upon. This is just non-negotiable. I say to you, unless one is born of spirit, of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In Luke 17, 21, it says, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God begins to work within us through the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our relationships. The sign of God's kingdom advancing is the, is the testimony of what he is doing within our hearts. That is what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is, is how he comes into our lives and transforms everything. The sign of the kingdom of God is our lives demonstrating the fullness, demonstrating the complete turnabout, the U-turn that he has placed within our lives. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You don't enter the kingdom of God by living well, by living good. That's flesh is flesh. Good equals good, bad equals bad. We're not even talking about that. We're not talking about behaviors. We're not talking about habits. We're not talking about a code of standard. Spirit is spirit. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does that mean? <laughs> what is, now he's talking about the wind. It's a bit like this. You can't control the wind, can you? You can't tell the wind where to come from or where to go. In the same way, life can't be contained. Life, you, when, when someone is pregnant, you can't contain that life. You can't keep it on the inside. There is a time and a place that is beyond our understanding where life bursts forth. The Holy Spirit will come and he will go and he will do as he sees fit, as he deems important. That is not to our purposes. That's not to our discretion. It is our place to respond in the right time and in the right moment. To not allow life to be constrained, but to allow it to be burst forth. You think about your own life. You think about the testimony of how you got here today, about the many decisions that you took and the point in your life where just the 
the thought of receiving God was just undeniable. That it beat within your heart. Whether you grew up in church or whether you've just come in the last few days. There is a point in your life where life bursts forth. Where it cannot be contained any longer. That is the power of God. That is what he's doing in every one of us. You can't put God in a box. God is, there's, there's no A plus B equals C about God. God is a God of love, not of formulas, not of rules. And Nicodemus answers and says to him, how can these things be? And this makes no sense to him because he is a man of the law. The law is what he has rested his entire reputation upon. And so the idea that, that, that it's not about rules, that it's not about following the Ten Commandments, it's not about all of the laws and all of the edicts, that it's something beyond that. To be able to see the kingdom of God is nothing to do with his behavior is mind-boggling. But you have to have a sense of sympathy for him because everything he's ever believed, the convictions of his life, the dedication of his career is being absolutely turned upside down in this moment. How can this be? And Jesus answers him and said, are you the teacher of Israel? I do not know these things. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not believe our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. I was following that and then the serpent thing. I'm like, what, what is, well, why, what's the serpent thing? What's Moses got to do with this? And if you go back to Numbers 21, there's the story, there's the account of how the, the Israelites out in the wilderness were just behaving in this way that showed complete and utter disregard, total dishonor for God. They were God's set-apart people and, and they just, they lived in a way that, that showed such dishonor towards him. Showed nothing of, of what God had done for them, the relationship that he had cultivated with them. And so he sent uh, this plague of snakes to bite them. And, and there's this very real sort of uh, synergy in that the sin that they had committed brought about this poison that was going to kill them. This sin in their life was going to kill them. That there was this, this poison that was rising through their system and was causing them to, to splutter, to, to suffocate, to not be able to live. And God said to Moses, make a bronze serpent in the fire and hold it up. And anyone who looks at this, anyone who sets their eyes upon it, who chooses to behold that, they will be forgiven. They will be healed. They will receive life. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The amazing thing is that that Moses wasn't God. He was just a man. He was a man with the boldness, the man who was willing to uphold the sign of God's forgiveness. It was that he would hold it up such that his people could see it, so that his people could receive a very real healing, but also this healing, this turning back to God. They set their eyes upon what God has said. Look, you you put your eyes on this, this this, this symbol of my forgiveness, and you will be set free. You will turn your heart. In turning, you turn your heart 
back to God. And the famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son. God set a new pattern for love. He gave freely and sacrificing at the highest price the most important thing. He reached out in love to all mankind. And he, and he didn't hold back didn't hedge. He said, you can have it all. You have my son. I give you my son such that you can have new life. Whatever that, that, that pattern that he sets for us, that, that we give up comfort, that we give up security, such that others might be redeemed. That whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, whoever realizes, whoever accepts that Him alone, Jesus alone can save us. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, the law condemns those who believe in it. Because we've all fallen short of the standard. Glorious standard. Those who believe, those who, who put their faith in the law, live a life of condemnation. That's why it can never be about good works that we do, because the bad thoughts, the bad attitudes, the bad actions, they'll always outweigh it. They'll always be what we... Good news repeals that condemnation. Takes that which held us down and lets us free. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Because the condemnation of sin separates us from God. Sin takes us away, removes us, leaves us absent. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. What did I say earlier? Won't let themselves listen. Won't dare let themselves listen. Won't let themselves hear. Won't let themselves come out of darkness because darkness covers. It, 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 It inhibits that condemnation. It, it, it creates sort of a blanket, a false blanket. So that's why. That's why the world doesn't want to hear. Won't just hear of its own accord. But he who does the truth comes to light. This is us. It's not, it's not does good, but does the truth. To minister the hope found in Jesus. That his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. To be a witness. To be a witness. To stand up in the light and talk into the darkness. To stand there and be willing to speak into the darkness. To speak to those who are absent. To speak to those who are lost. To speak to those who are hiding. 
That is the power. That is the witness that we have been called to. And I want to take us, just before I finish, I want to take us back to a verse that I just read a few more minutes ago. Because this verse, it's a verse that is, it's a conflicting verse. It's a verse that is actually, uh, lots of different people disagree about the meaning and the purpose of what it says. It's one that, 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 that creates division almost. In verse 5, most assuredly, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Born of the Spirit, born of water. Some people would like to think that means, well, you're naturally born and then you're born in the Spirit. That's not what it means. In John 1, John the Baptist says, I baptize with water. He baptizes with the Spirit. Baptism. If you replace that, it's like, I say to you, unless one is baptized of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. Baptism is, is not this rite of passage to receiving forgiveness, to receiving the Holy Spirit. It's a demonstration of what God has already done. It's an acknowledgement of the sin that has been confessed and washed away. It is for the benefit of the world around you that we publicly represent His grace. It's the realization that, that what God has performed in you does not end there, but that it is ministered to the lives around you. That's why baptism is so misunderstood. Because we have it in our minds that the power of it, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't revolve around a higher form of perfection. Because that doesn't make any sense. Well, if I get baptized, does that mean I'm now forgiven? Was I not forgiven before? If I get baptized, will I already speak in tongues? I already see the Spirit at work in my life. What, what, does, what does baptism add to my life? And, and that's where it shifts. That the power of it is that it is this representation of what God has done. It is this change, this inflection point in our Christian faith where we go from an internal pursuit to an external, to one where our lives about faces and faces the world that surrounds us. It's the power in releasing and commissioning us to minister that change that we've received into the lives of those around us. To be unabashedly standing up for Him, proclaiming His love, proclaiming his power. If you think about Nicodemus for one second, Nicodemus came to Jesus with all these questions, all of these conflicts, but his story didn't end there. If you continue to read through John, you realize there's a point where, where all of the Pharisees are sitting around having a, uh, their weekly meeting and they're discussing how they're going to murder Jesus and not create a riot at the same time. And Nicodemus speaks out. He stands up for Jesus in that moment. And when Jesus is crucified, Joseph of Arimathea goes before Pilate and requests his body, asks for the custody of Jesus' body such that he can prepare it. It is Nicodemus who is standing beside him. It is Nicodemus who is daring to stand out, 
who's daring to stick his head above the parapet. His steps may have been small, but, but that is the testimony that God's power begins in us and it is just the change of our heart. And as our heart changes, our mind changes, our appetites, our, our pursuits, our desires, they all change too. And sooner or later, our actions change. Our actions back that up. See, it's not a, it's not a false sense of urgency to think that the world, that your world, I say the world and it seems massive. The world is, can just be the people that surround you, the people whose lives you interact with. That world is waiting for you to do something. We pray that that God will speak to someone. God responds, I put you right there. You stand right there. We are the signature to God's masterpiece. We ask God to send a sign. You are that sign. You are Moses holding up the sign of forgiveness to those around you. Daring to step out, bold enough to step out. Just as I finish, go on and stand for a second. My uh, youngest daughter, Alice, has said this phrase to, to me and Laura quite a lot recently, probably for like six months. And I really like it. It's, 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 it's beautiful, but I, I've never probably thought as deeply about it as I have this morning. She says to me, says, Daddy, Daddy, I love you with my life. I love you with my whole life. I love mummy with my whole life. We never taught her to say that. That isn't something she's repeating. That's something that's just, that is her piece of art. That is the picture. That is, that is Alice, age two, the picture. I love you with my whole life. That is Jesus' message to the world. I love you with my whole life. Not a part of my life. Not conditional. I love you with my whole life. And I, I ask, I put the challenge out there today. Can we say that to the world? Can we say that to the people? That I love you with my whole life. And the way that Jesus set out the pattern that he put out for me, the blueprint that he created, can I respond? Can I stand up? Can I stand out? Can I dare to? Can I be bold enough to? Can I have the courage to say, I love you with my whole life? Love you without reserve. That I will tell you in the way that they will hear. Not to preach down someone. Not to infer a sense of guilt or condemnation. But to communicate love. God showed us. We thanks for joining with us for more information about events service times and how to connect with us visit www.thejunctionchurch.com